0: Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead, we'll hear about prison education for those on the outside. Some want to continue their classwork once they're released. Remember setting through long-winded lectures in school? Some science teachers say there's a better way. We'll check in with an area whose residents have questions about their drinking water after a major company has been ordered to clean up contamination. Reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is key to addressing climate change, but a large pipeline project that would transport CO2 for storage underground has raised concerns. We'll hear a report. The World Cup has excited multicultural fans across the Chicago area. We'll stop by some watch parties and we'll visit the Midwest Bus Museum. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide, I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, a pipeline project that would transport CO2 has raised concerns. We'll find out more. Switching schools can be difficult for students. Some do it multiple times in a year. What's the impact on learning? And jazz great Louis Armstrong came to Chicago a century ago. How did the city influence his music? We'll find that out. It's all coming up on Statewide. When COVID hit and Illinois prisons limited visitors, teachers and professors could not get in for their classes. They did what others were forced to do, turn to online learning. That also created a path for students leaving prison to stay enrolled. Anna Subchinko reports on one woman taking prison classes from the outside.
1: At about noon on Mondays, Maria Garza logs onto Zoom. She joins a class with a dozen other students all sitting together. She's the only one dialing in from home. Her laptop is on the kitchen stove. She pulls out a stack of plastic cups. What I'm going to do is set up these 10 cups, right? Garza is prepping for a chemistry experiment. She fills up the cups with things like borax and ammonia to test their acidity. Using cabbage juice, she boiled the night before as indicator.
2: So all my stuff is brown. Did you anybody get a purple? (laughs) But you know, we get the colors, <laughs> Y'all got purple and
1: green and blue? Yeah. Really? Garza and her classmates are Northwestern University's prison education program. It's for incarcerated women to get their college degrees. It's extremely rare. According to the corrections department, less than 1% of the people incarcerated in Illinois are enrolled in higher education programs. And only a handful are dialing into classes after release. Before Garza left prison about a year ago, she sat in the same classroom as her peers at the Logan Correctional Facility. There, they took classes in English, math, and art history. And as she neared her release date, she was excited to leave prison, but not her classes. Once I didn't make it out, we, you know, fought to see how I can stay in.
3: Maria was, was, I think, our first student who came home. We didn't even know at the time that IDOC would allow
4: students to continue by Zooming in.
1: Jennifer Lackey directs the prison education program in which Maria Garza is a student. She says there were some hurdles to overcome before Garza could continue her education after release. For starters, people on the outside need clearance to communicate with people inside. So the Department of Corrections had to approve her. Then there was the technology.
2: Actually, this was really caused by the pandemic.
1: Alyssa Williams oversees programming for Illinois prisons.
2: So, we worked with some of our university and college partners to be able to bring in smart televisions and D10 devices and laptops. Prior to that, that was not part of
4: our curriculum.
1: Lackie said the video conferencing equipment was game changing. Once that became a possibility, the kind of parameters of reentry support shifted in that moment. North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood runs a higher ed program at Logan and at Stateville, a prison about 40 miles from Chicago.
4: So far, we've had four students be
1: released. Vicki Reddy directs North Park's program. Their students who have left prison continue their studies in person on North Park's campus. But Reddy says the stigma around crime and incarceration hangs over the students who have just left prison.
4: Like all it takes is for one person to come out and and screw up in some way and it will mess everything up because we look at the one, not at the, you know, everyone else who's doing amazing.
1: Back in her kitchen, Garza with her laptop on her stove and her liquids that are still not turning into the right colours says she's found strength in staying connected with her friends. How does it feel, you know, now that you're out but you're logging back in twice a week? I know, right? Um, to me, it's kind of like a comfort. She said some people detach themselves from prison once they leave, but um, it's hard to like detach yourself from the people that understand what you're going through. She thinks it helps them too to stay connected to the world, and to see one of their peers making it on the outside and getting a degree. On the WB WBEZ News.
0: Some science teachers are ditching long lectures in favor of hands-on experiments and classroom conversations. The method is called modeling. Peter Medlin spent the day in a chemistry modeling class to learn how it works.
5: Okay, so we're plugging in the blow dryer, not something that you see all the time in a chemistry class. North Boone High School sophomore, Noel, is blowing hot air onto a blue balloon. The balloon says happy birthday, if you're curious.
1: The hot particles are hitting the balloon and then the particles inside the balloon are gonna start moving around quicker because of that and then after a little while here they'll move faster and faster and expanded.
5: That's how this class and all modeling classes work. Her teacher, Zena McFadden, doesn't stand at the front of class and lecture for an hour while students scribble notes with their heads down They introduce a topic. Right now this class is in a unit about gas laws and atmospheric pressure, but there will be no textbook definitions today. McFadden wants them to discover the material on their own. And as always, they jump right into a lab. And today, so do I. All right, do you need me to suit up? Do you need me to goggle and apron up? Typically students experiment for three or four days, working in small groups on each lab activity. One of the other labs today involves a little marshmallow in a syringe, and the marshmallow also has a tiny smiley face drawn on it.
6: We started at 15, it's like at a normal size, and then when we shrink it down to 15, the marshmallow shrivels up.
5: But why? They think that the pressure is forcing air particles out of the marshmallow. But what is pressure? And what even are particles? These are basic questions McFadden wants her students to learn and know through experiments. There's even a banned word sign.
7: You're starting out with nothing. That we see, this is where it starts. Words we use but can't yet explain, and we're not allowed to use them, until (laughs) they can
2: figure them out.
5: So one of the first experiments of the year is simply so they can prove particles exist. All it takes is a can of Febreze.
1: I spray some particles. They raise their hand when they smell them.
5: Now that they've got that established, they can move forward. But there's another component to modeling, one that's just as important as the experiments. It's called whiteboarding. Once students finish their experiments, they draw their findings on a large dry erase board. Then they gather around with their classmates and present their explanations. The rest of the class asks questions and together they decide what conclusions they can draw. One class watched a video of a gas tanker that violently collapsed on itself. Now they're drawing and discussing their ideas on why that could have happened. I
1: feel as if they had it backwards because if you look at it, there's not many particles.
5: Together, right as the bell rings, they put together that air particles and pressure from the outside of the tanker must have been a reason why it imploded and not exploded. As they say in the class after each unit, this is the story so far. They reach their conclusion together, and the models they build will change as they learn new information and new vocabulary. Noelle, a sophomore, says... Modeling took a minute to get used to, but now she likes it a lot.
1: After people got out of their comfort zones, I find it easier because you're not zoning out as much and you're not hearing from the same person, so you're getting different perspectives.
5: Phil Kolkaisi says that creating a comfortable atmosphere in your class is essential for modelers. He's a chemistry teacher at Wheaton Warrenville South and he helps put on modeling workshops where they teach modeling to educators from around the world. In a normal class, kids feel pressure, much like that little marshmallow in the syringe, to only raise their hand and present ideas when they are absolutely sure they're right. Modeling wants them to take risks and be more vulnerable to learn as a group. I see my kids thinking more and asking questions more. And even though teachers like McFadden and Kolkaisi aren't lecturing all the time and feeding them answers they're still guiding their students through each lesson
8: that's where the skill of
5: modeling comes in is the kids really aren't on their own we're pushing them through teacher questions to get them to the concept we want them to learn by knowing what's coming for what's coming next and modeling educators say that students engage and retain information better through modeling than in traditional instruction Two of McFadden's old students even drop by the classroom and pick up right where they left off the year before on a lab about how Yeti thermoses work.
1: And that's why it stays the same McFadden
5: has only been modeling for a few years, but she says that the move has been liberating. And she loves that it's not a competition, it's collaboration, a skill that'll help them no matter what career they pursue.
1: We gotta listen to each other because everybody's ideas are important and, and you, you can't learn it without listening to somebody else.
5: As they say in McFadden's class... This is the story so far. I'm Peter Mudlin. One of the
0: biggest worries for electric car owners is where to recharge on long trips. Michelle O'Neill reports that's why Illinois is implementing a five-year National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Plan.
2: The Illinois Department of Transportation submitted its plan in August. Elizabeth Irvin is the Deputy Director of the Illinois DOT's Office of Planning and Programming. She says for the first year, Interstates 74 and 80 have been designated alternative fuel corridors, among other highways. Under the plan, charging stations must fulfill several requirements. These stations all need to have you know, the ability to, for four vehicles to charge simultaneously at speeds that will allow sort of an average range EV to charge in under a half an hour. And these stations have to be no more than 50 miles apart along those designated corridors.
3: The charging stations must also be
2: located within one mile of the highway and be equipped with plugs that work with a wide range of electric vehicles. Irvin says many potential EV owners have what she calls range anxiety. The state has a goal of getting a million EVs on the road by 2030. And so building out this network is a real key piece of enabling people to feel confident that they can travel and transition to an EV. I'm Michelle O'Neill.
0: A pipeline project that would stretch 1,300 total miles has raised agricultural and environmental concerns, including here in Illinois. Zach Boblet reports.
9: McDonough County farmer Steve Hess is familiar with pipelines. Hess has one carrying natural gas on his property, and says he believes it has been a positive for the community.
0: We've talked about it, and my family is still glad that they did that pipeline project because it helped the city. It was something that helped out the community. Uh, we, have, we have hooked two houses up to it, and we actually dry our corn with it today. So we feel good. we feel like that was a public utility, and that was a project that we needed.
9: But Hess has a different view of the effort to transport CO2 from five states, Hess believes the CO2 pipeline would not be beneficial to communities like the natural gas pipeline on his property. In Illinois, the project would run through 13 counties in western and central Illinois using underground storage or sequestration at a site near Taylorville in Christian County. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, the VP of Government and Public Affairs with Navigator CO2, the company behind the pipeline project known as Heartland Greenway, touts the economic benefits – saying that it will create up to 9,000 union jobs, including locally in Christian County. While keeping CO2 out of the atmosphere is considered to be a way to slow climate change, there are some concerns about whether the pipeline would actually add carbon to the atmosphere. Hess has raised questions about the project, and he's not alone. Taylorville Farmer Karen Brocklesby questions the lease program being offered for use of private property. The company wants a 30-year lease with landowners. Brocklesby says there are concerns with whether that will cover any environmental damage.
1: If there are problems, who owns the problem and who has to pay for the problem? Uh, there are concerns about whether or not insurance companies would cover any kind of damages that would result from CO2 rising back to the surface and damaging something.
9: The Heartland Greenway officials say it maintains full liability for the safe operation of the project, which includes both the transportation pipeline as well as the sequestration site. But farmers like Brocklesby and Hess worry that the land would be impacted beyond repair for future generations. Hess says that the deep compaction of farmland is a concern he has about the pipeline. The deep
0: compaction, well, you can't take it out with tillage, you can't take it out with freezing and thawing. It's something that's there forever. There's no way to remove it. So I'm really concerned about farmland impact.
9: Hess also said that he has noticed the same deep compaction on his farmland from the natural gas pipeline that was installed in 1966. CO2 pipelines are listed as a public benefit under the law. However, the scientific community is split on whether a pipeline will actually accomplish a goal of reducing carbon emissions. Anne Baskerville with the Illinois chapter of the environmental organization The Sierra Club doesn't believe the pipeline is a good idea, saying, quote, CO2 pipelines extend the life of fossil fuels and undermine the significant climate progress Illinois has made. Illinois should focus on the acceleration of real climate solutions, like the implementation of natural climate solutions and renewable energy products, unquote. There are also worries about a possible leak. In 2020, a pipeline leak in Satarsha, Mississippi, led to a green cloud of fog and a rotten egg smell causing dozens of people to become nauseous and dazed. Francesca Butler is a member of the environmental justice task force of the Faith Coalition for the Common Good, and she says there is a big difference between the natural gas pipelines and CO2 pipelines.
1: So the difference between an oil and gas pipeline and something like a CO2 pipeline is that the gas and oil pipelines aren't pressurized to the same degree as the CO2 pipeline is. So it's not CO2 gas that's being pumped through these um, through the pipeline. It would be a highly pressurized, um, liquefied CO2.
9: The Heartland Greenway website claims the pipeline will allow for capture and storage of 15 million metric tons of CO2 each year. It also says the company builds and operates projects to meet or exceed safety standards. The pipeline still needs regulatory approval in various states, including Illinois. The Illinois Farm Bureau has filed a petition to intervene to make sure that any concerns can be addressed. But it has yet to take an official position on the matter. Meanwhile, the Illinois Commerce Commission began hearings on the pipeline in September with a deadline of next summer. I'm Zach Boblet.
0: You're listening to Statewide. We've got more ahead. Stay right here. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Chicago is a famously diverse city, so when the Men's World Cup comes around every four years, the teams representing many different countries have a lot of fans there. They in recently went to some World Cup watch parties.
10: We begin our odyssey through the soccer-loving ethnic communities of Chicago on Saturday afternoon in an Argentine restaurant on Elston Avenue. Barraene is the place in the city to watch the world's best soccer player. Fans dressed in Argentina's light blue and white packed Barraene to chant and chair for Lionel Messi as he pursues his first World Cup title in qatar this year marta oñate is from colombia but tells me she's a messi fan above all
2: claro, messi no messi el
10: she says messi does not let us down he is the best and sure enough messi opens the scoring against mexico it's clear who everyone at barraena credits With leading Argentina to the crucial win. Outside Barraña after the game, a woman originally from Buenos Aires says she came all the way from Ohio just to watch the game with her fellow Argentinos.
1: No hay
2: ninguna hinchada como la Argentina. No hay. No existe.
10: She says Argentina has the best fans. My next stop is the Croatian Cultural Center of Chicago on Devon Avenue. It was the site of big watch parties four years ago when Croatia finished second in the last World Cup to France. Croatian confidence was high again after yesterday's 4-1 win over Canada.
5: Croatia looks like a bunch of heroes out there.
11: I was like what? Heroi. It's a bunch a, of heroes, heroes, in Croatian heroes, and, and uh, it's it's a great day to represent our
10: home country. Maria Jukic brought three generations of her family to the center to watch the game.
1: I have my daughter, my son, and my mother-in-law.
10: After the game, everyone joins together to sing a popular song from the old country. Croatian center, it's a short drive south to see the day's final game, Spain against Germany. They have the game on in the second floor bar of the Donkhaus German-American Cultural Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood. Marco Hoya was born and grew up behind the Iron Curtain in what was then communist East Germany. Now he's the board president at Dankhaus.
9: This is one of the key cultural events that we do. And, uh, you know... Germany being one of the soccer nations of the world.
10: If you come and watch a Germany game at the House, it might all seem eerily familiar. And that's because the center's bar was transferred over to the House building from the old Chicago Brauhaus, an iconic restaurant on nearby Lincoln Avenue that closed five years ago. Yesterday, Germany's fans carried tall steins of frothy beer from the bar, and they saw a tie against Spain, which kept their hopes alive. The World Cup continues through December 18th, with many more watch parties of all sorts still to come across Chicago before the final game. Dan
0: Mihalopoulos with that report. The Environmental Protection Agency has ordered the company 3M to address widespread contamination of drinking water along the border between Iowa and Illinois from its factory on the banks of the Mississippi River. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco, with the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk, Reports residents and municipalities on both sides of the river are trying to make sense of what comes next.
7: Linda Vaughn and her husband have lived in a small white house near the river on the Iowa-Illinois border for decades. Their house is just a few miles away from 3M's sprawling facility on the Illinois side of the river, which means the American manufacturer is now required to test their water, and that of thousands of other people for traces of PFAS, the toxic family of perfluorinated chemicals used in everyday consumer goods. That sampling has confirmed in nearby water supplies. But Vaughn says she hasn't heard from the company. Mm -hmm. So has anybody come from 3M to say, hey, we're we're looking to test
6: your water? No, they haven't.
7: (laughs) Inside the 3M plant, over 500 employees produce the compounds that later make products like post-it notes and scotch tape sticky. And at various times, the plant has also manufactured or generated PFAS. Exposure to PFAS may increase cancer risks and decrease fertility. For the past decade, Illinois has allowed the plant to dump some of its wastewater into the river, but a few years ago, the company notified the EPA that it had released at least 60 PFAS chemicals from the 3M site into the air, water, and soil that it had not previously reported. Across the river from the plant in Comanche, Iowa, Gary Hopkins sips hot coffee in a diner. Earlier this year, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources found some of the highest concentrations of PFAS in the state, in this town. But Hopkins says so far, he hasn't heard about any issues. I think somebody better get on it and start finding out what it is. Which is what the EPA told 3M to do. Test the water. Find out what's in it. Some testing has been ongoing, but guidance is unclear. Local officials didn't respond to requests for comment. Their websites include some information that testing will happen eventually. And if you're worried, get a water filter or call your doctor. And according to the EPA, the full extent of the contamination remains unknown. That's left many people wondering if the water is safe to drink.
9: It's that serious, you know, do some surveys and stuff and find out what's going on and then... Get it to the doctors and the scientists and stuff and figure out what they can do to stop it.
7: David Swartney is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of Iowa, where he researches the health effects of environmental contamination. He says PFAS contamination is a growing problem, and that even with treatment, a lot of people won't trust what's coming out of their tap. Because there's going to be
9: lots more communities just like the ones affected by this plant that will struggle with PFAS. Um, we've, We've still got a long way to go on this chemical class.
7: Charles Brown is a utilities lab manager for the city of Moline's water treatment plant. He walks through the treatment plant, which filters 5 million gallons of water from the Mississippi River daily for nearly 50,000 people, and says testing and filtering out PFAS is going to cost communities like his a lot of money.
9: Yeah, when they designed it 100 years ago, PFAS wasn't a thing. And then when they did a big remodel about 20 years ago, PFAS wasn't a thing.
7: Other than in Cordova, 3M has two major American plants that produce PFAS, one in Minnesota in the Twin Cities and another in Decatur, Alabama. And now the company is facing lawsuits from South Carolina, California, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. The company sent us a statement saying that it is committed to keeping residents informed of progress. Back in Cordova, Linda Vaughn says she's taking a wait-and-see approach to the situation.
5: I don't think it we've had any
8: problems so far, and my husband's in his 70s, I'm in my 70s, so if something comes up, you
7: (laughs) 3M is required to submit a sampling and treatment work plan for private and public water systems to the EPA by December. Based on that sampling, the EPA will decide what to do next. But for now, people are left to wonder, what's coming out of the tap? In Cordova, Illinois, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco.
0: That story is a product of the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk based at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. The Congress that takes office next year will feature a Senate with a narrow Democratic majority and a House with a slim Republican majority. One of the biggest items the divided Congress will have to address is the Farm Bill, Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports what's not clear is how that split in control will affect the wide ranging and massive legislation.
12: On a cold, windy morning right before the midterm elections, shoppers at the farmers market in Rolla, Missouri were perusing meats, vegetables, and other products. They care about their food and where it comes from. Shopper Phyllis Mayer says she knows the Farm Bill is important, but that's about where her knowledge ends.
6: And I'm trying to keep up on things, but I don't even know what's all in the Farm Bill.
12: Susan Rassman also says the farm bill is important, but adds it shouldn't matter what party someone's in when it comes to food.
2: I think we have good candidates on both sides. They just aren't, I think, really coming forward because of such polarization.
12: As partisan and divided as Congress is, the farm bill may still be neutral ground.
0: The farm bill is almost unique in recent history as being a bill that typically has. Uh, supporters from both parties, and opponents from both parties.
12: Pat Westoff leads agricultural research policy at the University of Missouri. He says even with a clear lack of partisanship, there will be many disputes over the Farm Bill and its spending that could reach more than a half a trillion dollars. The biggest portion of the Farm Bill, more than 75 percent of total dollars spent, is on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Ellen Vollinger is the SNAP director for the Food Research and Action Center, a nonpartisan group that advocates for food programs. She says making sure people have enough to eat isn't and shouldn't be a partisan issue.
4: Benefits are going to average about $6 a person a day for SNAP. So it's not a program that provides uh, really sufficient food purchasing power for people to be able to afford a reasonably decent diet um, on a sustained basis.
12: Vollinger says her group is going to lobby hard for the new farm bill to increase the level of benefits and make sure they are accessible to everyone who qualifies. For farmers, the big issue will be crop protection programs, things like crop insurance subsidies and price protections. Westoff of the University of Missouri says there will be added pressure from farmers to bolster those programs because of inflation and supply chain problems.
0: So the current high prices we're experiencing, higher costs we're experiencing right now, will only be reflected in, in support for, the, uh, for producers. Uh, so we, we have a, a period right now of very, very low support uh, to, to the farm sector coming from basic commodity programs.
12: Just as the farm bill is up for renewal, Westoff says farmers are hurting because current government support programs for farmers haven't caught up with inflation and market issues caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's likely to be a top priority for agriculture interests. Climate change is one area that may be affected by party affiliation. Democrats tend to be more open to such legislation than Republicans. Ricardo Salvador is the director of the Food and Environment Program with the Union of Concerned Scientists.
1: The Farm Bill hasn't touched issues of climate change since the 1990s. Salvador says as
12: shocking as that may be, his organization is optimistic about getting environmental provisions in the upcoming legislation.
1: In the 21st century, we just cannot afford to have federal legislation on agriculture that doesn't recognize the reality of climate change. And more importantly, the fact that agriculture both causes important greenhouse gas emissions and can help us mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions.
12: Salvador says things are changing rapidly in the U.S. For example, farmers who were among the most ardent climate change deniers have come around and are among the groups looking to promote new practices to decrease greenhouse gases. While congressional committees have been meeting to discuss the Farm Bill throughout the year, the new Congress will convene January 3rd, and it could take them most of 2023 to pass the mammoth legislation. I'm Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media.
0: in now with our national public health reporting partner trade-offs states are starting to receive billions in opioid settlement dollars how will they spend it trade-offs host dan gorenstein brings us that story
11: thousands of state county and local governments have won more than 50 billion dollars in settlements from pharmaceutical companies prescription drug distributors and pharmacies for their role in the opioid crisis but now these governments face the daunting task of directing those dollars to stem this public health epidemic that has killed more than half a million people. I'm Dan Gorenstein, host of the health policy podcast, Tradeoffs. Producer Alex Olgan joins me to tell us how these dollars are forcing officials to reckon with long-held beliefs and judgments about addiction. So Alex, first question, can governments spend this money any way they want?
3: No is the short answer. There are limits, but they're pretty modest. There are several settlements, Dan, but let's just focus on the biggest one, a $26 billion deal between 46 states and Johnson & Johnson and three prescription drug distributors, AmerisourceBergen, Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson. 85% of dollars have to go to programs that help prevent opioid abuse or help those already struggling with addiction.
11: And Alex, I know it's early days, but how are states and local governments actually spending this cash?
3: So big picture, it breaks up into two camps. You've got states like Louisiana that have decided to send 20 percent of their money to sheriff's departments. Then you've got Rhode Island, which is planning to devote a good chunk to treatment and housing supports for people who use opioids, as well as programs that focus on keeping people safe and alive, a philosophy known as harm reduction.
11: So it sounds like two divergent views, addiction as crime, addiction as illness. Now, we've wrestled with this opioid epidemic for at least 20 years, Alex. Does one approach have more evidence than the other?
3: Well, treatment and harm reduction approaches certainly do. Dozens of papers show prescribing medications like methadone and buprenorphine, along with therapy, reduce the likelihood of overdoses. The drug naloxone has reversed an estimated 200,000 overdoses, and giving people clean needles has been shown over the last 30 years to be cost-effective, reduce the chances of getting HIV and hepatitis C, and increase the likelihood that someone will enter treatment.
11: And what about that other camp, Alex, addressing this as a law enforcement issue? The U.S.
3: government has pursued the war on drugs for about 40 years, arresting, prosecuting, and imprisoning people. Today, about half of federal inmates are incarcerated on drug charges. But reviews show this approach has not led to lower rates of drug use, arrests, or overdose deaths.
11: We started this conversation, Alex, by you telling us that there are only modest checks on how this money is spent. I'm guessing that leaves some of the people who study opioid addiction nervous.
3: Yeah, Dan, it does. 3,000 communities will receive some of this $50 billion over the next 18 years. And people who will decide how to spend the money often are not experts, researchers, or clinicians. Will they look at the evidence? How much will their personal and moral views on drug use dictate these decisions? Those are big questions as checks start getting cut and something to keep an eye on.
11: Tradeoffs producer Alex Holgan, thank you. To hear more about how state and local officials are spending opioid settlement dollars, check out the full episode wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs.
0: Tradeoffs is a national health policy podcast and content partner with Effects Public Media. Next up, we'll look at when Louis Armstrong came to Chicago. That's ahead on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, we'll take you to the Midwest Bus Museum. But first, the revered jazz musician Louis Armstrong landed in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood 100 years ago. His arrival was part of the Great Migration, where black folks left the South for opportunities elsewhere. Sienna Greaves talked with Ayanna Contreras, who's the content director for Vocalo Radio, about Chicago's influence on Armstrong's music.
2: So, Ayanna, tell me, what drew Louie Armstrong to Chicago? I think coming from New Orleans, the immediate draw was that Chicago was a recording center that a lot of cities didn't have at their disposal, specifically for jazz and what was called at that point ethnic music. Everything from blues to Polish music, just a whole lot of things were being recorded here. So between that music industry and, of course, the Chicago Defender, which was distributed pretty th- vastly in the South, the reputation of Chicago really preceded itself in a lot of ways. Uh, Also, you know, Chicago being a train hub, there was a direct train from his hometown of New Orleans to Chicago. Um, And last but not least, his mentor, King Oliver, was here in Chicago. What was Chicago like at that time? You know, not to be cliche, but it really was a city on the make. In the 1920s, uh, that was when most of our housing Uh, stock was being built up and even a lot of our main commercial strips, most of that stuff was built during this time period. So it was just a city that was full of excitement and jazz was in the soundtrack of all of it. It really represented this modernity that people were attracted to. Louis Armstrong had a very unique sound and personality. What did Chicago musicians make of his style? So musicians in general noted that he was quite brash and, and loud, and not in a, a rude way, but just really exuberant, we'll say. I, 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 the story that sticks with me was that one of his early recordings, he was playing for another band leader. They were all gathered around this horn, which was how things were recorded back then, just one recording device. And he was so loud that they excommunicated him to the corner of the studio so that he didn't overpower all the other musicians. How did his style differ from what was already happening in Chicago? You know, I think the Chicago sound really was an amalgamation of a lot of different black sounds, right? Like it's a a space where gospel and blues and later what became rhythm and blues was really germinating. But he, coming from New Orleans, was bringing another, another interesting strain. There's a quote that I heard that he said, The jazz actually rose from the dead. The real music came from the grave, and that's how jazz began. And that is why it brings people to life. You know, he came from New Orleans where jazz was in the clubs, but jazz was also a way in which to celebrate death through marches. And it it just really changed the way in which people um, understood what jazz could be. In your opinion, what is the main takeaway from Louis Armstrong's time in Chicago? It was a really formative period for him working with his mentor, but also working with a lot of other musicians that were really giving him a chance to shine. I think if he hadn't come to Chicago, it's hard to know what he would have become. I do think that the freedom in Chicago, the city on the make, that it hadn't been established of what Chicago was going to be yet. I think that helped him realize the possibilities. And the story of Armstrong's time in Chicago actually intersects with your own family history. Uh, as I understand, your grandmother actually met him. The story is that my <laughs> grandmother, who was five foot four and some change, uh, wound up in a club one night sitting on his lap. And she talked about that for many, many years. <laughs> and this is because, you know, she was born in like 1916, but he came back multiple times. And there's a lot of photos of him in Chicago and in the Bronzeville area in particular. So. That's a funny story that stays in our lore.
0: That's Vocalo Radio's Ayanna Contreras speaking with Sienna Greaves. They were discussing Louis Armstrong. He came to Chicago 100 years ago. Rockford Public Schools perennially have some of the highest student mobility rates in the state. Mobility rate is the percent of students who experience at least one transfer in and out of their school during the school year. Experts say that disruption can be harmful. Peter Medlin tells us more.
5: In 2021, Lewis Lemon Elementary School in Rockford had the highest student mobility rate of any elementary school in Illinois. Around 50 percent, half of the kids at Lewis Lemon moved in or out of the school between October and the end of the school year. And in 2022, Ellis Elementary School in Rockford had the second highest student mobility rate of any elementary school in Illinois, with just over 34%. Lewis Lemon was also in the top five again. For context, the state average for mobility is around 7% lewis Lemon and Ellis are also less than a half a mile away from each other on Rockford's west side. And the other schools in Rockford with sky-high mobility rates are also in this area, Auburn High School and Kennedy Middle School. Tabitha Endries-Cruz is the executive director of the Northwest Community Center in Rockford. Along with other community services, they offer after-school programs and academic enrichment for elementary school students, many of whom go to Ellis and lewis Lemon. She says she's not surprised to hear about the mobility issues on the west side of the city.
1: There are so many schools that are so close by that if you move one block the wrong direction, you're in a different zone.
5: In fact, she said that very situation just happened to a family with kids in their program. They moved one street down and had to switch schools. But even though they transferred schools, their bus can still come to the community center after school. Endry's crew says they see themselves as a steadying presence, especially for students experiencing disruptions like that. Aaron Jarrett is the superintendent of Rockford Public Schools, and he says their community really wanted to return to a neighborhood schools model with some choice programs built into it.
4: But with that comes, I think, a real risk for high
5: mobility. There are 21 elementary school zones that fit into four high school zones, and he says having so many rigid elementary zone boundaries is an issue they might need to
4: change with policy. One of the policy proposals we are going to be contemplating is, do we at least allow mobility within the high school zone as opposed to literally having these small elementary zones? When you talk about some of the things that happen with housing instability, we are doubling down inadvertently, I think, on some of the challenges that that creates. Jarrett says student mobility is
5: way too high in Rockford, even compared with other large urban districts. Moving itself is pretty common, but schools with higher percentages of black and low-income students tend to have higher mobility rates. That's according to Richard Welsh. He's an associate professor of education and public policy at the Peabody College at Vanderbilt University, and he published research examining student mobility in 2017 in the Review of Educational Research. He says there are several factors that cause mobility. He says first, you can break it down into structural and non-structural. So non-structural is when a family moves on their own, whether it be for a new job or loss of work.
8: Most of the literature have found that there's this association between changing schools and, you know, worse student outcomes. So a decrease in test scores, higher dropouts.
5: He says there are situations where the benefits of moving outweigh the costs of mobility. Say a family moves into a neighborhood with better schools and more support staff. But with low-income communities, that's not usually the case, especially during a pandemic. Poor families often have to move quickly to the safest, most convenient location possible without being able to take the time to weigh the strength of schools. A study from Johns Hopkins found this is often due to income change, housing quality and landlord issues, and neighborhood violence. Those are non-structural reasons for mobility. Structural is due to systems and policies of the school itself. That could be as simple as finishing 8th grade and moving on to the high school. But it could also mean exclusionary discipline policies like suspensions, expulsions, or expulsions in abeyance. Rockford Public Schools consistently ranks in the top five in Illinois for suspensions and expulsions, and administrators in Rockford handed out 7,000 suspensions last year. That's more than twice what Elgin's District U46 gave out even though they have more students than Rockford. They also send hundreds of students back and forth to alternative schools every year through expulsions in abeyance. Richard Welsh says that school discipline and mobility are inextricably
8: linked. When we think of chronic absenteeism, when we think of school discipline, when we think of student mobility, there tend to be cause and consequences of each other.
5: He says it's also important to note that mobility doesn't just impact the student moving.
8: It might affect the student as they go through these transitions and try and navigate a new schooling environment but it also affects the school and students within that school who didn't move as schools themselves tried to navigate the churn of students and how that might impact um, their day-to-day operation and the strategic direction moving forward.
5: That's something Aubrey Barnett sees all the time. She's an English teacher at Flynn Middle School in Rockford. Its mobility rate is lower than the rest of Rockford but still more than twice the state average.
3: It was heartbreaking to watch them leave. I had several students leave. Some as early in the year as like October because some zoning issue.
5: She says it affects how they teach and the district keeps the curriculum structured with every quarter being the same.
3: They want a kid to be able to move between schools if needed because that's their family life and not punish that kid by starting a totally repeated curriculum because the next teacher doesn't do the sequencing the same way.
5: She gives the district credit for using that strategy, but it's not just the curriculum. It impacts her and the other students in her classes. Sometimes you really didn't know
3: if they were going to leave or not and having to work through those conflicts and relationships and conversations and what their friends are saying and what their social media is saying. All of that is like, Just it takes up emotional space and energy in a room.
5: She says building relationships with her students is the foundation of her work as a teacher. And that's even harder when kids are coming in and out of the school. And that's not to mention how hard it is for a student to start fresh in a new place and leave their friends and old teachers behind. I'm Peter Madlin.
0: Buses are workhorses. They log hundreds of thousands of miles through the years, carrying thousands of passengers every day to school, work, and other destinations. Once a bus is used up, its destination might be a scrapyard, but there is a new possible home for at least some of them. Rich Eggert tells us where two recently retired public transit buses from Western Illinois have gone.
4: Tom Schwartz has loved buses since he was a kid. I guess you could say I was the bus nerd. So uh, even when I was a little kid, I would get thrilled when I saw the bus coming.
6: He even collected Matchbox, Hot Wheels, and other toy buses. Schwartz still loves buses. When he's not busy with his day job at the Johnsburg School District, where transportation is one of his responsibilities, he spends time as president of the Midwest Bus Museum. The organization was founded just a couple years ago. Museum members are fundraising to build a permanent facility, possibly near the museum's temporary site in Richmond in Northern Illinois. Schwartz recently came to Western Illinois to acquire two buses that McDonough County Public Transportation retired and donated to the
4: museum. So we are just thrilled to be getting them and uh, be able to preserve them in our collection. Both
6: buses are what's known as high floor buses. Schwartz explains.
4: Actually, right when you walk in, you walk up two large stairs or three large stairs. This is what's changed in transit design. Um, to bring, you know, bring the floor, front floor of the bus down to make it easier for ADA accessibility. So we'll step up. into the, the bus, and it's a conventional design, in that the floor throughout the whole bus is the same level. You'll see modern buses today; they'll have a low floor in the front, and then a couple stairs in the back, which makes it great for the uh, front of the bus to have ADA seating.
6: The high-floor buses did have wheelchair lifts, but they were slow and cumbersome. He calls the low-floor buses the king of the transportation industry today. Schwartz says the buses just donated to the museum are from the 1990s or early 2000s. The oldest vehicle in the museum's collection is a 1942 Twin Coach.
4: All the buses have an interesting story in how they survived all these years. This particular 1942 twin coach survived because it was modified and made into a sightseeing bus. So they literally chopped the top off, uh, changed the seats out, and it was uh, known as the Tennesseer, and it was used for sightseeing in Tennessee.
6: He says the twin coach ended up in an Indiana junkyard before the museum found it and saved it. They've cleaned it up and used it for tours and sightseeing. Miranda Lambert is director of McDonough County Public Transportation. She says when her agency retires a bus, it checks with the Illinois Department of Transportation to see if the vehicle can be used by any other agency in the state. If not, they usually end up getting sold, often for scrap. But in the case of the two newly retired buses, Lambert says Jeff Waxman of IDOT suggested something else, donating them to the museum.
5: So when he saw that we were disposing these two items and saw the type of buses they were, he touched base with the museum to see if they currently had those type of vehicles. And once they realized there was a void there, he reached out to see if the city would be interested in donating them to the museum.
6: Lambert says the donated buses were replaced with 2019 New Flyer low floor buses. While the museum collects all types of buses, it places an emphasis on school buses. Tom Schwartz believes school buses get overlooked by other transportation museums. And as a self-proclaimed bus nerd who as a child was thrilled by the sight of an approaching school bus, it's his passion to educate others about their importance and how they've changed through the years. Rich Egger reporting.
0: And we're out of time for this week's statewide. Thanks for being with us and join us again next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. All of our episodes are available at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. And you can also find our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.